Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today on the Second Command podcast is Anthony Chrissy, Sales Establishment EVP for Line Drive, a turnkey solution that assists in management and consultation as well as strategic marketing. Anthony is a husband, a girl dad, and a Pearl Jam enthusiast. When not working at Line Drive, his passions include cooking, playing golf, gardening, and playing with Isabella and Sienna. Anthony started his career focused on IT sales and management with CDW in Chicago before joining Line Drive in 2006. For the past 14 years, he's been part of building Line Drive's nationwide success. Based out of the Chicago area, Anthony spent his early Line Drive years in field sales before moving to Philadelphia in 2010 to focus on national account sales, helping Line Drive expand geographically. As regional sales manager for the East, he was responsible for hiring and building the team of nationwide solutions and consultants that exist today at Line Drive. After spending five years in managing sales teams, his efforts shifted to addressing Line Drive's vision in the areas of marketing, sales, operations, IT, and training. With a passion for technology, Anthony has helped Line Drive to be an early adopter to systems and platforms that are geared toward increasing sales and effectiveness. Anthony is on Line Drive's leadership team as well as the customer advisory board for Pipeline Deals. So, Anthony, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Cameron. Man, 14 years with one firm is a long ride in 2020. Like that's something from the 80s. I get that a lot. I, I really do. Some, you know, some people come up to me and they'll just be like, I can't believe you're with Line Drive that long. Wow, you've been there almost since the beginning. So it's, it's definitely been worthwhile though. What keeps you there? Boy, that's a good question. Well, I would say that in the early stages there, the idea that I could grow within the company and that the company wasn't nationwide at the beginning was really something that interested me. So I was young, uh, I was single, you know, I had this opportunity to really grow and thrive in a, in a thriving company. And, and, and so year after year, I kept moving up, moving out. As I said, you know, you said in the uh, introduction there, I moved to Philly and that, that whole idea of continuing to move up and move, you know, drive the company forward is really what gets me going every, every year, you know, and, and that's why I continue to still be here. Growth is exciting, right? Tell us, tell us what line drive does. Oh, you might have to help me on this one, you know, cause sometimes people don't really get it, but I know you do. So line drive started in 2000 as a manufacturer's rep firm for the industrial sales sector. So representing large uh, manufacturers in industrial sales and selling them through distribution to companies like Granger, Fastenal, Amazon, et cetera. Over the years, I've really shied away from using that term because most people don't understand what it means. Also, it carries some, some negative stigma to it. So what I would say really more than anything is we're, we're, we're industrial consultants. You know, as, as, as it goes, we, we consult both at the distribution level, the end user level, and ultimately at the end of the day, we're helping manufacturers elevate their brands and we're helping end users be more productive and safe. So, okay. So you're going to have to walk me through why there would be any negative connotation to it. And, and the reason I do understand it is my dad's company was a manufacturer's rep and, and my brother bought my dad's company 15 years ago. And, and they're a manufacturer's rep of industrial and automotive products up in Northern Ontario. And I think it's a awesome business and it does great. And, and they really do help the end users 
I didn't ever know that there was a negative connotation. Why, what, in what way? I think, I think, you know, so look at line drive line drives, a 60 person company or nationwide, typically manufacturers rep firms are not that not to say that there aren't those type of companies out there. A lot of times here, the, the, the agencies that you see out there are one, two man shops or, you know, 10 people, et cetera. And the number of product lines that they represent are typically really varied, right? So it becomes a question of credibility for some of how much do you really know about that stuff? And what do you really represent? We've really carved out a different niche by being a transparent about the number of products that we represent. Most, most manufacturers reps and nothing against your family. I don't know. You can't usually go to their website and see the product lines that they represent. We put it out there publicly so that people know what they're getting. And they're very uh, well-known brands, brands like DuPont, Motorola, Fluke. So we want to use that to our advantage. So I think, again, not everybody has the negative connotation, but at some point in time, you know, it kind of comes across like a snake oil salesman to some people, you know, it's like, Oh, oh I got to deal with another, another salesperson. Can I just deal with the direct guy? And I'm like, well, we are the direct guy. You know, we're, we're here because this is the best path forward for that brand to be able to reach you. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I know. I never saw that at all. I mean, all of my brother's products are on their website. They represent brands like Bosch and Karcher and um, they, they were cool. selling, they were selling to the, to the mines. I mean, big, huge mining companies that were underground that the U S companies couldn't afford to send people up into Northern Ontario and the end users were buying a ton of stuff. And yeah, they know the product line cold. My brother, that's awesome. actually, he knows too much about starters and alternators and rotors and shit that it, it actually used to bug me that I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. They knew their product lines. I think better than the companies making them probably knew them. That's, that's cool. And, and I love to hear that. It's interesting here. You say Bosch too, because that's one of our, our, our newer clients that we're, we're really making headway with. And there's definitely people on our team that have that, um, you know, very well, you know, technical knowledge. And there's certainly our manufacturers do as well. I always like to say if, our, if, if these manufacturers are really good at doing everything, including making the product and selling a product, they probably wouldn't need us. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's the reality is that there's, there's typically pain. We're not getting hired by companies because they're killing it in all facets of their business. No, but think about like, think about any retail store that exists. I mean, you go into Home Depot, they don't make all the products that they sell, or you go into a, to a grocery store, they don't make all the products that they sell. Those right. are basically... Those are basically big manufacturers reps, right? Like it's no different. I would look at them as, I would look at them as distributors because we're okay. not taking a P we're not taking a PO for anything. We're not stocking any product. Uh, we, we're, we're solely, you know, sales and consultancy. Yeah. You think of us as an extension of, of the, of the manufacturer. So you're an outsourced sales organization in lots of ways then. Very much so. Do you, one of my dad's um, little secrets years ago, he used to say that the answer is yes. What are you buying? And it was like, if you need, <laughs> if you need to buy it, I'll get you a great deal for Northern Ontario. And then he would go to the manufacturers and he'd line up like the, the rights for Ontario or the rights for Canada, the rights for Northern Ontario. Do you guys do that as well? Do you, do you listen to your customers and then try to source or do you have your specific products that you are more marketing those? Yeah, right now we have our specific products that we are, uh, we are marketing and not to say that we wouldn't go out and if and source something, if we saw demand this year is obviously very interesting with the way things have gone down. We identified gaps in our portfolio where we're like, 
in order for us to play, you know, in, in the season of COVID, these are some of the things that people are looking for that we're going to need to make sure that we can provide, you know, viable solutions to, whether it be masks or sanitizer or plexiglass shields that go up um, in workspaces to be able to keep people distanced. So in that way, you know, we have intentionally sourced things but for us to go out and work at a Tyson food plant as an example and identify somebody comes up with something that's maybe very unique to food processing, would we go around and turn around and figure out how to get responsibility for saying that and selling that? Maybe, but not typically not. We, we definitely keep our, our portfolio at a certain level so that we can make sure that we are not over-promising and under-delivering. Interesting. Smart. So why do you think your organization grew past what typical companies in your space grew then? If most of them are in the one to three or the 10 person, uh, how did you guys get to 60 and why? So that was the goal from the, from the get-go. So the company was started by six guys that worked for one of those type companies. And they, in a way, hit the ceiling and said, we don't want to be doing this. We don't it feels too much like we're shucking and jiving. We don't like the, the way that it feels and we want to have our own thing. So in 2000, six guys left one agency and started their own agency. Okay. Basically each put it right. Each taking it and taking a risk. And yeah, I see, I see you. <laughs> You've got so many questions already. <laughs> I'm like, so, well, the, the company that lost six people really fucked something up there. <laughs> yes. So, and they lost six really, really good people. And uh, so these, these fine gentlemen started their own business in 2000, each throwing 50K in, taking no salary for, for six months, taking a small business loan to get the, the company off the ground. And let's say it's at 10 people at that point. Over the next five, 10, 15 years, basically we would double our business, not only in people, but in, in revenue and sales every five years. And even through some of the hardest times, 2000, 2008, and 2009, we tripled. And essentially what it was about was there was this gap in our industry where most manufacturer reps at that point in time were solely focused on the channel and the distributor. Get the product on the shelves, get it in, loaded at the distributor, move on, all program-based. They identified before they left their other agency, we got to do that. We're really good at that, but we also have to get to the end user. The end users, the end game for this, this is who really uses the product. It's where the biggest customer base is. That's where we need to get to. So they looked at it and said, we need to, in order for us to be successful, we need to be nationwide and we have to have a field team that spans nationwide. And we also have to have, call it a headquarters or a program team that is able to service that channel from the program standpoint. So you have one team pushing things in and the other pulling things out. They thought originally they were going to do it in five years. I, I, I know it's funny. The CEO will tell that story uh, all the time. Oh, we thought we were going to be nationwide in five years. It took them 15 years. And uh, the why is, um, and not to you know take a uh, you know a ton of credit or anything, is why is to get passionate people like me who were really excited about how the business was growing and took chances to help you know expand that business. So when I moved to Philly that was our entree into getting into the East coast. And by me moving to Philly, we took on more responsibility. All right. So there was that, that upfront with some of our manufacturers, if you go there, if you put a person there, we'll give you more responsibility. And we, we definitely did that uh, over the course of three years on, on the East coast and eventually nationwide. 
Interesting. Smart. And I love that they're actually kind of following the people that want to stay with the organization too. So how much have you influenced the growth of the organization? Oh, I don't even know how to fully answer that, but uh, I think, you know, the influences that I could think of is really pushing them to step outside the norms of what a, a, an agency, you know, was in their past. So getting them to, uh, them to invest in technology, getting them to invest in people that were a little bit different than maybe what they thought that, that we needed. Um, they have a very interesting model too, having, having come from a family business, their desire was not to have a family business. So they set that carrot out at the beginning, whereas you could earn partnership and ownership within the company uh, after a set amount of time, which I did uh, in two ways. I, my first was back around 2012, I became a C-share member within the company, which essentially opened me up to profit sharing and uh, more inside work. And then more recently this year, I moved up to B-share, which means I'm, you know, fully vested in the company, made a financial investment and, you know, taking part in, in, you know, growing and making more, more business decisions for, for the company. So I think stuff like that, you know, has really influenced how, how the people that are at, at the company, because they see, okay, here's this guy who's been there almost 15 years. Um, he must be, you know, doing something right, or he, he must see something that, that is, is, you know, worth sticking around. Are the six are the six founders still there? They aren't. There's uh there's only four right now. Two have since retired and seceded out. And did you buy them out? Uh, me personally, no. But the business, yes. The other founders, yes. Okay. And then and then so do you think the the profit sharing with you and then uh, later the 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 um the the equity in the business? Do you think that was their way of now handcuffing you to the company for the next five to ten years, or was it rewarding or both? Yeah, it's both. It's both. And, and it, was a, it was a good, challenging conversation for both of us because truthfully, it's the first time that they've, they've done that with somebody at my level. And uh, other than the six guys that they, the, the, you know, that they started the business with, they, you know, they haven't brought anybody else closer to the fold. So that was very rewarding. There were certainly financial rewards that came with it, but the challenge also became down though you get to the nitty gritty where you're negotiating your divorce, you know, before it actually happens in a way mm. when you're going through the legal aspects of what the operating agreement looks like. And, um, you know, you're asking questions and, and challenging things that are built into an operating agreement for, for good reason. You know, <laughs> that's a really, it, it, this has never come up on our, on, on the podcast yet. And, and it's interesting that you bring it up because it is very similar to negotiating a prenup, you know, in a marriage, um, which is really kind of messed up. I did one once and it's really messed up that you're supposed to be massively in love with this person. And yet you're negotiating your divorce and you, I don't know, it, it seems awkward and odd. And how, so how did you go through that? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? What, how did you get through it in a good way? Yeah, thanks for asking. It it definitely was awkward. It definitely was challenging. And I think the question that I kept posing back to them was, would you do this if you were me? And there were certain things that they said yes, and there were certain things that they said no, and it was a very honest back and forth. And at the end of the day, uh, I'm not I'm not one of the founding partners, and I'm not an A share member, meaning A share meaning founding partner. So I knew I wasn't going to get everything that I wanted, but I knew I was going to at least make some headway on things to make it so that it was a 
a worthwhile investment for me and that they understood what my intentions were to help build this company beyond the next 20 years. I've said to them and I've said to others, uh, inside and outside of our business, I believe what got us to the first 20 years, this is our 20th, uh, 20th year, what got us here is not going to be what gets us to the next 20. What is going to get you through the next 20? Challenging the norm, just definitely stepping outside of what our comfort zone is. We make money primarily one way today, which is, uh, you know, being paid based on a percentage of a commission based on sales for the, for the products that we represent. We're doing so many different uh, services and, and, and things for our clients and others that we have to look at that um, as an option as far as uh, how we serve and how we earn money differently to our customer base. I also think we seamlessly transitioned to working virtually through this year because we were so, so set so well with the, with the tech stack and everything that we have that there's definitely something there to us being more, more efficient and being able to use the, the data better. We're, we're often credited to skating where the puck's going, you know, even by our, our distributors, our, our manufacturer clients. So it's that kind of mentality of, you know, saying no to certain things that might be easy, but, and, and quickly profitable, but not long-term profitable and being patient about the things that are going to you know, help us be you know, more sustainable over time. What, what things do you tend to say no, no to? I actually had a mentor years ago who said that true leadership is about saying no more often than we say yes. What, what kind of things <laughs> do you say no to? I like that guy, whoever said that. I, I, wish, uh, I wish that some of the people in our company did that more often. I think um, in the past, what, what we've said no to are expansions. So we, you, you mentioned Canada. We have been approached before about going to Canada and, and taking the line drive model and replicating it you know, outside of the States. It's complicated and it's, it's, it's not something that um, after doing our due diligence would have been profitable when we looked at it. Same thing with Mexico. Uh, there are things that are still, you know, we're open to listening on. Uh, so we've said no to that. Um, we've said no to representing clients who are not a fit because either they had poor financials and we were concerned about them being able to pay us or they weren't a good fit culturally. We've certainly worked with our fair share of people that were really good. Uh, we have a really good synergy with Bosch would be a great example of that. Our cultures are very similar when it's not similar and you know um they're the hammer and you're you know you're the nail that doesn't last long yeah culture is so critical when you've got that supplier relationship or that partner relationship i remember years yeah. ago this is going to go back to 1987 my dad won a trip to germany that was a, a two weeks all expensive paid trip to germany with bosch and it was uh I ended up going because he didn't want to go and his business was, I guess they were going through some crazy times, but I went with my mom with all these other distributors for Bosch and we had a two week amazing tour through Germany on Bosch. It was awesome. That sounds awesome. Yeah, it was great. We like just went to some really cool cities and I fell in love with the country. Yeah. Um, you talked about, yeah. about your tech stack and the data and, and I'm curious how you use technology for the business. Yeah, that's a big one. Because your because your industry funny, was, could be your industry could be very stuck in the 1980s. Yeah, what do you think the uh, what do you think the most commonly used CRM is for industrial uh, reps? My brothers would be business cards, a stack of them. Yeah, and most people and most people is like Microsoft Excel. So yeah. <laughs> uh, so 
there's that piece and that, that translates. Uh, so we, I guess what we've found over the years is when we've invested in technology, it's made us better, plain and simple. So we were early adopters to Salesforce uh, and we don't use them now, but I could, I'll speak to that. But we were early adopters to Salesforce. We've been early adopters to marketing automation. And I say that like in our industry, because certainly none of that stuff is, is, you know, bells and whistles, you know, most other places. But I was on a call with uh, somebody a couple of weeks ago and they said, you don't have a tech stack. And I said, well, we use pipeline deals, AWS, we use uh, Showpad, we use Active Campaign, and I've started around that. He's like, oh, you do have a tech stack. He's like, what are you using AWS for? Um, so it's all of it is is in the in the vein of more efficiency and helping us to make our team, um, you know, smarter, more nimble, and being able to present solutions to the customers faster. <laughs> the biggest decision we made over the past year was to part ways with Salesforce and Pardot. Um, we were paying well over one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars for that relationship. And it just, uh, nothing against it. It's it's overkill. And and what it did was it opened um, cash flow for me to use in other places that's been phenomenally um, successful. Um, You know, and and the biggest thing, and, you know, we could talk about it if you want. Um, I know we're going to probably talk about it at some COO Alliance one day, but Showpad has been an absolute game changer for us this past year. What's Showpad? So Showpad is this system that basically is, uh, a content uh, formats on content and coaching, right? So it's a, it's got a built-in LMS and then it's got a content management system that basically allows you to set these experiences up that uh, you, our back end to it is all SharePoint. So what happens is we load all this content in by our manufacturers or by different verticals, themes, et cetera. We tag all the information and it easily populates into this very clean, nice looking um customer-facing tool that our team uses on their phone, their computer, or their iPads. And not only does it, does it allow them to share information very cleanly, it changes the conversation from, you know, yeah, send me that or call me that to set up a demo because they're sharing video, they're sharing PDFs, they're sharing presentations. And not only that, they're sharing it out of the system. And when they're sharing it out of the system, there's a marketing automation built in so that they know when their people are reading it, downloading it, forwarding it. And it's a very simple, simplistic uh, automation. Whereas if you've, you know, used any system from Pardot to Active Campaign or whatever, we only have a few people in our company that are doing that for us. We don't have our sales guys using that stuff. We're doing it for them, sure. right? And then the co- the coaching element, boy, that changed this year altogether because you're not in person, and then you're also realizing that people are learning different ways. So what I mean by that is. I might, you know, I got a four-year-old and a five-year-old, okay? So by the time they go to bed, I might stick my, my AirPods in and listen to a training, you know, or listen to a podcast just to wind down and it's 8.30 at night. Um, you know, you might be able to do it in the middle of the day. You got older kids and you might block out time in your schedule, you know, during the day or something like that. But that doesn't, you know, I'm rushing to the finish line during the day. So, um, so, so anyhow, that it allowed us to offer on-demand training. It allowed us, allowed us to not have to get 25 people, 60 people on a webinar and, you know, any questions, crickets, you know, so um, it, uh, it really has changed that aspect. And then it gives us, you know, scoring, right? So we know how they're doing. <laughs> it's got, uh, it, it's got a system in there called pitch IQ, which allows people to record their, 
you know, record. So they learn about something and then they record how it sounds, uh, you know, with them talking about it. So it's been validates to us. Okay. They got it. They understood it. Very cool. So, so it's a full, it's like a coaching and a sales enablement tool, but it's simplified. Yeah. It's, it's sad that I think people get so sucked into these big tools that are usually a overkill for what we need. And then B, you spend so much time trying to get them to work that you're not actually using them properly. And then you got all the internal resources and time that you're churning on it instead of, you know, simple can actually work quite well. We found that out the hard way for sure on, you know, trying to, uh, to implement Pardot last year. And we did more with active campaign in three months than we did over a year with, with Pardot, you know, and it, it just, it was ease of use and effectiveness. If you ever need a good active campaign guy to um, to help do any freelance stuff with that, with active campaign, I've got a really really good one who does it all remote, and he can come in and set up funnels and manage stuff and awesome. teach, teach teams. Yeah, he's really really good, and he, and he's cheaper because he's Canadian, so you're actually paying him eighty cents on the dollar, which is nice. <laughs> so, how many sales guys have you got out in the field, or salespeople do you have out in the field? So we have twenty seven that are called on our field team you know, out in the territories, seeing end users at, you know, at the, at, you know, at the factory level. And then we've got another 20 that are, uh, call it in, a, in one tier up in like a key account manager, strategic account manager level, which are calling on distributors primarily wow. doing some business development at, uh, at, at users. So 75% of your organization is sales. Yes. Uh, probably 80 if I count the inside sales team now. So we've got you know, we've got uh, people out of the Chicagoland area inside on the phones as well. Interesting. What's, what works, um, you know, what works in hiring salespeople? How do you find great salespeople? How do you hire them? I know that there's not a single salesperson who ever gets through an HR screening process because HR people hate salespeople because they're completely different, <laughs> right? But so how do you find good salespeople and, and um, how do you recruit them and hire yeah, them? Yeah, no, th- yeah, that's, that's good. Uh, it goes back to what we were talking about as well uh, in, in saying no. So we certainly, we certainly have found really good people that you, you get through the process and you're like, oh, I really like this person, but you know, that the something doesn't, doesn't, you know, quite line up. And I think that's been uh, we've learned that the hard way over time, but our process is using our, our, our friends and colleagues that we know, you know, that's so, so people that we know through the industry as our first line of defense. So referrals are a, are a big piece to that. We definitely hire a lot from within the industry because it allows us to shore up that industry knowledge. That's one piece of it. But when you look at the tools that we use to make sure we're finding the right caliber person, we're using disc tests. We're also using outmatch tests. Uh, we used to use divine in the past. And what that does, it's not the end all be all, as you know, by all those tests for us, but it gives us some pretty good indicators of, you know, what people are going to, you know, be able to develop on what they're not. Uh, and then there's a, there's a couple out of there that um, are deal breakers for us. If, if we're hiring an outside salesperson and they somehow, you know, trend really low as travel willingness on their, uh, on their, their test score or um, adaptability is really low, vitality is really low. Those are, those are not coachable things in our mind. Those are things that are probably going to rear their ugly head at some point. If it says somebody's not a good listener, if it says somebody, you know, has uh, challenges with addressing conflict, we can help on that. We can, we can mold that clay. 
Interesting. You've looked for, for what true behavioral traits can be, you know, they, they can adapt and which ones are just truly that, you know, the, the leopard doesn't change their spots, right? They're, they're always going to be the same. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'm, I'm, you're, you're familiar with the disc test, right? Of course. Yeah. I'm on 98 yeah. D, which is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I took it. I'm a D, I'm an I and I'm a C, but my wife likes to remind me what that spells. So uh, I'm more an I, I think, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty heavy DI. And, uh, yeah, same. the thing is, 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 is just to your point as a person who's 98% D nobody could ever get mad at you for that or should be surprised by that. If they know that about you. Right. It's just, it's, you, what, you makes, I mean? it, it's what makes me, me. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So, so that that's gut check for us. So that's the right person, um, for us in certain roles. For the business development guy who is, you know, by all means a mercenary who we need to just go out there and kill, that's a good that's a good uh, skill set. That's a good mm -hmm. profile. Mm -hmm. um, for the sales enablement person on my team that I need to sit in front of her computer all day and crank out stuff and work on spreadsheets and work on you know content and whatever, probably don't want to D. <laughs> so it sounds like you said that you did. You've got a couple of people inside that are doing support for the salespeople. Like it sounds like you're kind of taking some of the marketing and the drip campaigns off the salespeople because they're not good at it. Is that right? Or what, what do you, what do you take off their plates to assist them in sales to allow them to sell? So in, in name, we don't technically have a support team, but we certainly have people that are supporting the business in different roles, right? So we've got a finance department, and those finance people are building all of the salespeople's sales reports. And that's what you use AWS for. That's a new portal that, we're that we just launched this year. So there's a lot of that that um, is being done for the salespeople to make it easy for them to be able to understand their numbers. My group, the sales enablement group, is doing all the marketing, operations, IT, and training. And, and those four elements... Uh, result in a lot of resources and tools and things that, that the team used to, to, to make their job easier. That inside sales team right now, that inside sales team is making outbound calls. So they're truly salespeople opening and closing business, but they are taking some of the smaller deals and some of the more tactical transactional stuff off the outside salespeople's plate as well to be able to close it quickly. They're in front of their screens. Let the, let the guys and the gals in the field move on to the bigger things. So um, there's that piece. And, and as far as the marketing automation, that's just me being a control freak, Cameron. You know, that's, <laughs> and, and so when everybody in my you know, company hears this, you can, you can hear it. It's just it's me and, and, uh, and my team wanting to control the output there and not break the system. Well, it's funny. Like I, I've actually taken control of the this, the marketing automation with Active Campaign for our sales process too, and it, it's it's less because I'm a control freak, and it's more because I don't think my sales guys are naturally good at it. Um, one of them, well, neither of them are. I think they're both very kind of entrepreneurial in their head, go, but they don't necessarily articulate it clearly. And because they're trying to do it all so fast the stuff right. that comes out is pretty random, but if we can actually have a copywriter and a marketer write what we push out and then they can actually be on calls with people over zoom or in person closing deals, it seems to work well for them too. You spot on. And I would agree with that, that, you know, I went with control freak first, but I'm going to tell you, uh, definitely we're not, there's, there's not some lost uh, copywriter or marketer in our, uh, in our sales staff that right. we haven't, uh, that we haven't of, uncovered. <laughs> and I can't, I can't find a good copywriter who can sell. 
right? Copywriters don't know how to build a relationship and sell. And if a, if a prospect says no, the copywriter runs away and says, don't call them. Meanwhile, a sales guy's like, I know they're at their desk. I can call them in a week and they'll say yes. Right. They're, right, they're, they're right. different. They're different beasts that, that it's kind of like a guy is not a hairy version of a female. We're just different men and women are just different. And well put, well put. Tell me about, tell me about enterprise sales for a second. What's the trick to doing, or are there a couple of tips to landing the bigger clients or to getting in on those enterprise deals? Uh, you know, I think when I, when I think about that, I'll think I'm going to answer it in, in, in two ways, right? Because in a, in a way we have more than one customer. So when you look at it, landing an enterprise customer, like somebody like a DuPont or a Bosch, somebody that's going to pay us to be their outsourced sales company. Okay. It's a long process. It's a detailed process because in a way uh, you're, you're getting married. You're, you're making a very large investment for them typically. And um, time commitment for us. So what we've learned over over the years is there's typically like a criteria that those people go through, and it doesn't. It's not just as willy nilly as like I need to hire salespeople in uh, you know these random states, and I heard these guys are good. It's a it's a it's a dance, you know, typically to be able to talk through it and to have to justify what we're going to have to do, and keep in mind that in that circumstance we're not typically being hired because sales are through the roof, right? right? So to land that, you have to tell the bigger picture. You have to be able to articulate, great, you got 60 people. What are all the different things that make it up? The culture part has been a huge part of, uh, of us being able to land deals. We've heard that from Bosch, from Warner Co., from, from DuPont. Um, we, we sound like we're on the same team when we talk to those people because they look, they look at things the same way. They believe in investing in personal development, which is a huge one for us. You know, we don't, we don't have all the answers. We have to continue to feed ourselves. You Interesting. Know? Yeah. And, and from, from landing bigger customers, you know, at the user level, let's just say so, cause we've had success where we provide a solution to one and then blow it up, you know, to, you know, multiple more locations, take like a food processing example, or, uh, you know, you know, a large manufacturing example it really, really takes both of our, our one sales team, but the two different parts of it working together because from the tops down, you're not, you're not providing a solution to a large food processing customer who's got 50 locations or even 500 locations just with one sales guy out of one location. You're, you're bringing everybody together to be able to deliver those solutions and you're bringing those, those headquarter people in to make sure that those solutions are stocked and priced right and available to be able to meet the demand, you know? So it really takes, and that's where, and that's where I think we really differentiate ourselves. Not to say that other companies don't have that. We just, our secret sauce is we know how to do it better than most. How do you shorten the sales cycle with an entrepreneur, with an enterprise level client? Sometimes, you know, it's like long sales cycle. That's always felt like an excuse to me. How do you shorten the cycle? Well, you got to make them see their pain faster. I would, you know, it, it really depends on the pain. That's huge. It's the, it's why, the Xerox, why do you buy stuff? It's the Xerox spin cell, right? Situation, problem, implication, needs payoff. You really show them the pain. That's going to, that's interesting. Well, think about why you buy things. You buy things because you want them or you like them. 
you know, I, I like toys. Like, so if I see something that I really like a new speaker or new music or whatever, new guitar, and I can afford it, I'm going to get it. So simple, but so huge. The enterprise level clients, when you just really show them the pain, that's going to get them to make their decision and move their process faster. But if it, if that's interesting, it's not about the process. It's not about trying to make the process faster. It's just about creating more urgency for them. Right. For us, it's about showing them the pain, showing them the pain that they don't know that they have, showing them what they're missing. Mm, that's interesting. I like that a lot. Okay. If, if we were a company, um, if there's a company listening that, that wanted to work with an independent sales organization or with a manufacturer's rep, what, what allows companies to get the best results through teams like you? You know, if you've got a Bosch or a whatever company that you're, that you're selling for them, what what has what gets you guys selling more of their stuff? What what like how do they get the best results? Because obviously for for them, the more you sell is good for them. How, how do they help? It's a Jerry Maguire question, right? How do they help you to help them? They gotta treat us like they're you know we're, like we're we're their own, you know. So the people that we're succeeding the most with, it, we're we are sharing the most. We are acting like we are on the same team. The people where in the past, maybe where we've had difficulties, it's like we're kept at an arm's length with it, where it's like you work for me and you go do what you do and we're going to do what we do. And, and uh, that might sound a little brash, but the reality is, is we've come so far in the past, you know, I would say five years with really making sure that we're one team, because if we are and we're driving towards that same goal, we get there faster. We get there with higher results. When we start doing the whole you versus me, or you didn't do this and et cetera, it doesn't work, you know? And, and it's, and it's tough because, because sometimes people's egos get bruised and mm. to your point, we are an outsourced function. So some people expect, you know, that it should, we should just be able to turn it on. So I would also, I would also just say just that, that, once you identify the pain and you, once you identify what's, what's really realistic, it's having the right expectation set, you know, upfront, you know, you can't get hired and, and guarantee that you're going to grow business 20% overnight. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah. That would be nice, but um, I don't know that we would, we would sign up for that. For sure. I want to go back to you a bit again, as a, as the CEO or as, as the EVP, you've been there now for 15 years. I mean, clearly, you know, you're not the same guy you were 15 years ago. You've had to work on your skills. Some of it has come from being there, but some you've worked at. What do you think you've worked at the most in terms of your skill sets as a leader? For me, it's been emotional composure. It's been tonality. I'm, I'm fiery. I'm going to tell you like it is. Uh, I like to win. I'm, I'm very high, you know, high, highly rated in negotiating too much, you know, at, at, to some extent of, you know, I might only be able to see it my way. So I think that uh, those are the things that I've, I've worked on particularly the most and kind of as it, as it goes throughout anything, you know, you're, you're trying to listen more and choose how you, how you respond. Yeah. Respond versus react, right? Yeah. I suck at that. I'm so bad at that. Um, (laughs) We all have our moments. We all have, I I would, I would, I would disagree with that. I would in the short time that I've got to know you, but, but I understand what you mean. Yeah, no, I get, I get, I just, I take any criticism extraordinarily personally because I feel like I'm working so hard that it always feels like a massive attack until I realize later it's just feedback. Um, and yeah, I, I just, 
I'm go, I'm, I'm a 98 D right. 74. I I'm like a perpetual motion machine. So I, I don't slow down enough to go huh, or ask a question. I just, I'm like, boom, boom. I'm like a ping pong ball. Right. Boom, right? Yeah. All no, right, I get that. Let's go back to the 21 or 22 year old Anthony Chrissy. He's you know graduating college. He's getting ready to start off in his career. Um, what advice would you give yourself back then that, you know, now you know to be true, but you wish you'd known when you were 21 or 22? Oh, so I, I think, I think I would have thought about what, what I was going to do more uh, in life at that point. And I probably would have put more effort into, you know, uh, making my first, my, my decisions of what I was going to do right after college, because I, I had such passion for music all right, that, that, uh, I was in bands. I was, you know, a ru- uh, running a record label. I was doing all sorts of music stuff that I jumped right into the entertainment business, uh, in college and right out of college. And while it, it has afforded me many good, uh, stories and, and, um, experiences, it also, you know, delivered some of the harshest lessons I've had in my life. And I think, at that point in time, I think if I would have been a little bit more focused on the, you know, longer, longer term, what I really wanted in life, which I knew at that point, you know, I, I come from a big family. I, I knew I wanted to get married. I knew I wanted to have kids. I knew, you know, I wanted all this stuff and I was a little bit too laser focused on, uh, you know, uh, the rock star fantasy at that point. And, um, like I said, no regrets, but it, uh, it slowed me, you know, down out of the gates a bit and, uh, you know, could have given me a leg up sooner if I would have got into business a little bit sooner. All right. Well, maybe you get to, to kind of keep your music as your passion and you haven't ruined it by getting into business too, though. Yeah, you're right. I, so back in the day when I was working in that, I was all numbers and ticket sales and record sales, et cetera. And I wasn't going to music and, and enjoying it. Now I just spin records and play guitar and get to go to concerts someday again and enjoy them. Have you seen, um, this is, I'm, I'm obsessed with this artist for the last couple of years, but have you seen the movie searching for sugar man? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, Fantastic. So good. Right. So Rodriguez is the artist, but just yeah. such a strong, strong movie and strong artist and love his stuff. It's awesome. Oh, it's just, incredible that stuff like that even happens too. I mean, and just the, and the following that he had overseas and stuff like that. And, you know, it just, that was a, that, that movie blew my mind. Yeah. I actually bought a couple of um, albums of his stuff. I mean, obviously they're repressed, but it's kind of cool to be able to, to play his music off of an album versus off my iPhone. Yeah. So just feels yeah, better. Trust me. I got a record player right over here in almost every room. It's it, people think I'm crazy sometimes, but it's a big deal. It makes a difference. It's fun. It's kind of cool. Anthony Chrissy, the sales EVP for line drive. Thanks for sharing with us on the second command podcast. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to second in command. Brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.